We don't need environment movements. We don't need development movements. We don't need poverty movements. We need justice movements. We need movements that come together and build this kind of transformative. And that's where the idea of Black Lives Matter is really important because if, unless that's very, very central, that the lives of people in the rest of the world matter, you're going to start from a different point, you're going to come to a different demand and you're going to come to it and you will see success in a very, very different way. But if your demand starting point from saying they matter, you will be making very, very different decisions than the ones that the environment movement is making right now. Welcome to Sustainable 135. Welcome yourself to Sustainable 135. Oh, we are your friendly weekly environment podcast, didn't we? Yes. All about people and the planet. Yes. And why, despite everything sometimes seeming a little bit, we can sometimes be a bit, <laughs> a little ooh, bit, a little bit, a little bit, <laughs> oh God, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so uh, in that vein, to whom are we going to talk this week? Oh. Well, we are going to talk to quite possibly one of the most inspirational people you will ever, you know, hear, see, speak to, meet. Kylie? Uh, I mean, on a par with Kylie. Wow. (laughs) I wonder if he's ever been introduced like that. Uh, He'll be flattered. We're going to talk to Asad Roman, who is currently the director of War on Wants. Uh, kind of international poverty charity organisation. He'll tell you about that. Um, but is more importantly a long-standing campaigner for all that is right in the world. Um, just a brilliant, brilliant human and um, uh, somebody who can paint a picture as what needs to be done and what the problems are better than most. Yeah, he's been campaigning against climate change right at the front line uh, for... Years and years and years and years and years, he was he's led movements calling for much tougher international action on climate change, literally marched people out of uh, climate talks because they weren't getting the right sort of answer from posh Western governments. Seriously inspiring dude. So we talked to him. We talked to him about uh, the whiteness of the environment movement, that means us, oh, uh, Yep, yep. <laughs> we talked to him about why it is that polar bears on icebergs is not quite the point when it comes to climate change. And we talked to him about why believing that Black Lives Matter is the first thing you've got to do if you want to get serious about climate. In it all. It is, yes. Uh, so this is a fantastic, fascinating, far-reaching talk. Um, basically, we haven't edited anything out because... No didn't need to uh so enjoy this uh we should do the usual disclaimers shouldn't we uh we do work for environment charities but these are very much our own views uh and those of Assad. uh although you know you got any beef with Assad, good luck is <laughs> all i will say uh but if you got any beef with us uh take it up with us uh, rather than the people for whom we work splendid shall we yes So hello, Assad. 
Hello indeed. Oh, you're very quiet. I did a big barnstorming. Hello, I said, hello indeed. indeed. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I go up into exactly. <laughs> volume. Times I've seen you raise the roof. I suppose it's all about the journey, isn't it? Right. Uh, so, for anyone listening to the podcast who doesn't know who you are, would you mind saying a little bit about uh, you, your background, uh, what you're doing now, how you got into it, that sort of thing? I'm Asa Raymond. I am uh, director of War on Want, which is a sort of radical anti-poverty human rights organisation. We work around on climate as well. Um, but I suppose uh, uh, my Twitter handle says uh, something like uh, I'm an activist against all bad things. So I suppose that's uh, my origins. In fact, my origins actually come from being involved in the anti-racist movement. Uh, I grew up in Burnley, Lancashire in the 70s and 80s. Terribly sorry to hear that. Uh, yeah, it's all right. I, I mean, it's a shithole, but it's my shithole. <laughs> uh, so I will defend Burnley to all outsiders and only I'm allowed to criticise it. Um, I was involved in the anti-racist movement uh, very much in terms of around the period where, of course, the National Front were on, marching in our streets, uh, skinhead gangs, firebombing of, of, of our homes and a huge spike in racist violence and racist murders. Uh, and that really opened me first to, of course, the anti-racist struggle, but, of course, it was a time when you couldn't really divorce the struggle against racism here from the struggles against racism and colonialism that was taking place around the world. So I became an internationalist from a very, very young age, asking the same question, and largely stayed true to sort of radical black politics, which was always internationalist. Uh, I've worked in a few different NGOs, from Amnesty to Friends of the Earth, um, and I always say... I am a reluctant environmentalist. Uh, Does that mean you don't care about the environment or what? Well, it's not that I don't care about the environment. Uh, I mean, I would say that the environment has always been something, or the environment movement has always been something that didn't really sit well with what I would call sort of radical uh, black politics and radical movements. Not that environmentalism didn't sit, because that's been part and parcel of our struggles around the world. There's always been a struggle around whether it's struggle for the right to food, the right to land, ending corporate power. It's all, it, environmentalism has been integrated into the fight around economic and social justice. It's just that I always saw the environment movement as being something that was quite alien to us. And, I, I, and that's not because I wasn't actively trying to engage with them in fact i live in east london when the m11 protests were taking place which was the you know that one of the big iconic moments for the environment radical environment movement and that was half a mile from a black community where we were marching five ten thousand people around racist murders and police violence and that protest had never in in all of its time ever made any attempt to connect with us radical people on the on the street even when they were complaining about police violence etc and the same with reclaim the streets where many of us were involved around uh, uh, progressive mo- movements but you know reclaim the streets for example when it took over brixton um i was part of standing together with pretty much every other black and brown person on the st- pavement saying, who are these people who are taking over our streets? And so our engagement was always, you can't suddenly come into our communities and do these actions. You actually have to engage with our community because actually most, the middle of the road was overwhelmingly white in terms of reclaim the streets and the edge of the street was all black working class people saying, why have you stopped my buses? I need to get to work and I need to go shopping, right? And 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 so, the, so our conversation always with the environment movement was, you have to invest 
You have, you, the question isn't, why aren't we coming to you? The question you have to ask yourself is, why aren't you making yourself relevant to our struggles? So um, so I had always seen, for example, Friends of the Earth as being, you know, a bunch of hippies, liberals and sandal-wearing people and, um, and, and, and genuinely thought, I am never going to find that as a space to be politically active. Um, and until actually I was involved in the social movements and the European social movement, and I came across people who were involved with Friends of the Earth who were active there who said, but we're not like that. Really, we do genuinely believe around economic and social justice and are internationally, look how we are. And I met Friends of the Earth international people and thought, oh my God, they're so different from this group that I see in the UK, which I see as very, very liberal. And when I speak, see with Friends of the Earth International people, they taught my language. They taught the language of justice. They taught the language of people. They understand structural issues and they talk about environmentalism in a way that connects with my struggle for global justice. And uh, and they were the road in which I first came into Friends of the Earth, actually. More and more and more, the poorest in the world will be the ones who die. They'll be the ones who die because of their food systems. They'll be the ones who die because they won't have fresh water. But they'll also be the ones who I'll die tell you, my first day at Friends of the Earth, I was, uh, I was sitting uh, in what was the old building and uh, I had something to throw, some rubbish to throw in the bin. And I went to the kitchen and there was like six or seven bins and I didn't know which one to use. And then I went to the toilet and it said, as a sign, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If oh, it's no. brown, flush it down. And then I was like, oh. And I had to go out and call my friends in. <laughs> I think I made a mistake. I don't know what to do. And I actually put the rubbish back in my pocket and I didn't throw it in the bin because I thought I would throw it in the wrong bin. And I, I better get back to the lentil casserole before I get disorientated. <laughs> you've, you've written and talked a great deal about how climate change is racist, but the, not climate change itself, it's a scientific force, but that the white world's response to it is racist. Do you want to talk a bit more about what that means? Sure. I, I mean, I would say, you know, I, I have to say, I, the reason I stayed, and I stayed at Friends of the Earth for a very long time, nearly, I spent nearly a decade at Friends of the Earth, uh, because when I started talking with our movements, particularly global movements, who I'd been very involved with, around fights around trade and economic justice and against the war and all of those things. And they all, and we all, when we were talked and we said, what are the problems that we face globally? We all identified that climate change was one of them. And they said, but you've got to go and be in this very important place that's called Friends of the Earth because it's a big name and you have to bring our politics into that space. And that's genuinely what I've tried to do in that. And, 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 I would, you know, looking at climate change now, um, and I'm sure people in the future, when they study climate change and our response as a movement, they will say, this was a, a case study in how to get everything wrong. So uh, when you look at climate change and how it was framed, uh, that it was framed as, as if an idea of one, largely, a, it's a theory of change, one elite talks to another elite, you know, uh, that there is a problem and then, you you know, governments will act rationally and they'll find a solution and they will do that. And then we'll save the polar bears. Uh, well, well, I, I, you know, and then, you know, you, the, the images that you use to create your base, not for, to get them to do anything political, but simply that their, their role is to give you legitimacy so that you can sit in a room with other decision makers. For me, that was largely what the environment movement was doing. It was basically saying, 
which is why most of the calls were always empty calls, right? Act on climate change. And then you had license to go in a room with government or with decision makers and say, our members and British people saying we must act on climate change. And now we can have a rational conversation around it. Um, And which is why it picked totally the worst thing that you could do, which is pick a white polar bear and a white iceberg as your symbol of climate change, because that would depoliticise it, it disconnected it from ordinary people, and it made it sound like that climate change was something that was going to be solved technically, or by, you know, if it was so bad, then it would be by the elites. And if we did ask people to do something, it was just, there was a huge dislocation between what you would say, this is such a big issue, change your light bulb, don't use this, you know, and it all became about your little personal action, um, rather than understanding that what we were fighting was a very, very, we were fighting an economic system, and that had powerful vested interests, and to be able to do that, you needed to centre the language of justice, you need to ask yourself the question who you're going to be accountable to, the demands that you were going to be making needed to be you know, relevant to both the science and the urgency. And of course, that one of the problems I think we've, as we are, the reason we're in this position we're in is because actually a large part of the environment movement knew the truth and were always afraid to tell the truth and never told the truth, didn't tell the truth to their own supporters and definitely didn't tell the truth to the British people. So now when people say we've got, you know, five years or 10 years to prevent uh, catastrophic climate change or prevent a breach of the guardrail of 1.5, Forget, you know, we were running climate campaigns in the 1970s, right? Uh, And, you know, 50% of all the emissions that are in the atmosphere have been, from the last 25 years, the environment movement could and should have done something very, very differently then. And I think we would have been in a very different place than the one we find ourselves in. Talk a little bit more about that that response to to the crisis from the climate movement because you you were very involved in getting that 1.5 target on the table and and saying now this is for the people who are on the front line of climate impacts now this is this is beyond acceptable to go anything above that but what what were other people saying like if if the science was so clear well what else was being said well for a long time. The environment movement, you know, echoed uh, a demand largely formulated by European policymakers, which was the two-degree guardrail. And that really didn't have any basis in science. It was just plucked a little bit out of thin air because at the time, decision-makers thought you could slowly transition your economy and it was so far away that you would have, it wouldn't threaten your economic interests. And so they adopted the two-degree one. And actually, the climate justice movements originally argued for one degree and said we must prevent climate temperatures increasing beyond one degree because actually every increase of temperature is leading to a collapse in our food systems, the destruction of our lives and livelihoods, and climate uh, deaths. So we're already paying the price in the in the global south, uh, and we have to prevent that. And in fact, in Copenhagen, in the classic, in the big climate talks, that was the demand from the climate justice movements and it was the demand from many of the countries of the global south uh, pitted against the Europeans and uh, and the European Union that was calling for two degrees and mainstream Europe climate movement largely northern that was also calling for two degrees the 1.5 came because actually we breached we went past one point one degree and the climate justice movement said well gotten past that and so the demand actually from the global south was not 
1.5 to stay alive. We were saying 1.5 to barely stay alive. We were saying that absolutely all of those increases have a consequence and there's a cost and we're being sacrificed uh, within that conversation. So yes, it was important to win that fight, but it's also important to not say, see the guardrail as being, well, you know, that's some abstract guardrail. We Our argument was that actually it's the the, the very process is what we have to tackle. And if we simply become fixated around a temperature of parts per million, it gives again, the, the it, it leads us into the wrong sort of uh, uh, conclusions about you know, what the climate discussion actually should be about. So it might, I guess, sound like it's stating the bleeding obvious, but state it anyway. Uh, why is it a matter, why is it such a big matter of life and death for the global south? Why is 1.5 barely alive? What does climate change mean in that context? Well, look, I mean, these are all, uh, I mean, truisms in the sense we all say, you know, climate change is the greatest inequality in the world. And of course it is, right? I mean, this is the great irony about climate change, that the people who are the least responsible are the ones that are most impacted at the, uh, uh, first and foremost. And that's recognised. It's recognised in all the climate treaties and the climate convention. Um, but that in, those impacts are not simply in, in, in abstract, oh, it's all about, you know, increasing sea level rises. Climate change is not only in an inequality, but it fans all other existing inequalities. So whether you talk about, you know, food, it impacts in terms of food. You talk about displacement of people, it forces people to live. It, it pushes people who are already on the edge. And of course, we live in an economic model in a world where neoliberalism has left 70% of the world's population uh, struggling with poverty. Half the world's population, that's three and a half billion people living on about $5 a day. We've got about a billion people with, who, who face issues around hunger, about one and a half billion people who don't have access to energy. So it's a very, very different experience. So climate change uh, pushes people who are barely surviving into not surviving. It is in itself in injustice, but it compounds all other injustices. So, look, you know, I, I come, I was born in Pakistan. I come, I mean, when I go back to Pakistan, you know, uh, I see the reality of climate change. We last year we had a heat wave, fifty three point five degrees centigrade. Right, um, the temperature in Death Valley is fifty four degrees. The reason why it's called Death Valley is because a human being can't tolerate that temperature out in the open. In Pakistan, that's the temperature we hit. And this is a country where four out of 10 people face multiple poverty. Where it's your choice, you don't have a choice but to be out if you are a subsistence farmer. You know, the last time we had that heat wave, where 1,200 people die in one city alone. Because actually, if you're poor, access to water is an issue. You know, you don't have air conditioning. You don't have all of these things. So, of course, it's, it, it is a much more sort of a reality. So that's why... When we were saying 1.5 to barely stay alive, we were trying to bring home the argument uh, and, and reframe climate justice and reframe the climate debate as being one around both economic injustice and climate injustice and the compounding impact it had on ordinary people and recenter the climate debate away from the polar bear, away from talking about the Arctic and actually started talking about the people who are being most affected and then the, what was happening to them. <laughs> I sometimes feel dizzy because of the heat. A little while ago, I was about to collapse. It's so hot that I can barely speak. What can I say? We sometimes have to break the fast out here in this heat. I, I think I, I was in a, a, an environment, one of these environmental movements, meetings, and uh, uh, somebody countered to me once and said, you know, but 
we're all on the Titanic together, right? We're all on the Titanic and we've hit the climate iceberg. And, uh, you know, and I, I did count it and saying, yeah, you were absolutely right. We are all on the Titanic. But there's a very different experience about the Titanic because on the, on the deck of the, of the Titanic are still the citizens of the global north and they are overwhelmingly responsible for the climate crisis, that 10% who are responsible for half the global emissions that we see. And they're still sipping cocktails. They don't feel it's a planetary emergency. They're still listening to the orchestra because they think there's going to be some technical answer. It's in the hold. That's where the poor people are, black and brown indigenous people, and they're drowning. And actually when they try and escape, they're being barred shut, right? They can't get out of the hold. And, and people are like, oh, that's just fantastical, right? You're just not being realistic and all of those things. And I used to talk about, say, there will come a time when European and northern governments will talk seriously about having to put warships to prevent people from uh, crossing borders. And people would say, just being alarmist, that's just not going to happen. We, you know, we're a liberal democracies. And look what's happening. You know, we're having 15 people die each day drowning in the Mediterranean. And what's the response of Europe? It's to put warships to prevent rescue boats from being able to go and rescue people. We're making agreements with everybody from Libya to Turkey to Morocco to offshore uh, our migration uh, and put detention camps there. It's not just Donald Trump who's talking about walls and fences. And, you know, today was a, was a just on this, was very interesting. There's a new report out today just talking about the Honduran migrant caravan, you know. And, and, it, and this is, I think, the story, what the climate justice movement of the Global South was trying to tell. That, that people who are fleeing from Honduras are fleeing for a number of reasons. They're fleeing because of poverty, inequality and violence. But that poverty, inequality and the violence has come from and two things. One, say the US has supported a military a dictatorship and overthrew the Honduran government. But also Honduras, Honduras has just suffered one of the worst droughts possible, right? And when you're a subsistence farmer and you rely on rainfall to grow your crops, and that fails one year, and it fails two years, and it fails three years, you then are a survival migrant. You have no choice but to move, and that's what's actually happening to people. People don't want to leave their homes, don't want to leave their land, but they're forced to move. And the majority of them move internally within their own countries, but some of them then get to a point where you say, you have no choice but to move across borders. And and that's the, now the reality, and that's why that I think it's a very different climate story than the climate story that's told by, I think, mainstream environment movements. Are you seeing any response to that in mainstream environment movements? Are you seeing anything changing or are the same problems that you were identifying 10, 20, 30 years ago, are they still just, you know, slightly different language but structurally the same? Well, well, I, I think there's now, um, uh, you know, increasingly uh, an acceptance of the, for example, the importance of the 1.5 degree guardrail. Right now, everybody plays lip service to that. Uh, uh, you keep saying guardrail. What's a what's a guardrail got to do with anything? Yeah. What's what's a well, guardrail? Slip up. I'm going to give slip. him. Can I I'm claxing him. Slip past that guardrail and uh, and uh, we, we we trip down the stairs. I think that's the argument, right? Head over heels. So, uh, uh, but it's you know yes. I mean, actually, it's a genuine question, right? I mean, we say guardrail just to try and get people to understand. You know, it's not simply about there's this number and that's it. Actually, it has a consequence if you go after this guardrail because then we start to get into tipping points where no matter what we do, there will be consequences around that. And no you're matter not, how we... are climbing back up the steps to get back where you were behind no. that guardrail, are you? No, no yeah. I, I, absolutely not, right? So, so the answer is, I think there is a recognition now because, of course, we've seen 
climate scientists issue a report that says, hey, we shouldn't be breaching this, it's going to be catastrophic. The problem is, is still the demands actually that most environment movements make are still not, you know, the right demands in terms of meeting our fair share of effort that we need to do. Uh, most environment movements won't talk about, for example, the need for transfer of finance to the global south, for technology, etc. So yes, there is seems to be an added urgency, but uh, even, even the most radical thing, and I'll say this from a point of love and respect, because I've spent a long time saying to people, uh, why aren't people talking about planetary emergency? That if you go to anybody's website, go to Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace, WWE, anybody's website, you will do not get a sense that we're in a planetary emergency, that you do not get a sense that millions of people are being displaced, hundreds of thousands of people are dying, the consequence of destroyed lives and livelihoods, etc. You just don't get a sense at all of that. Um, I, so, and, if, and I, I say maybe I've helped a bunch of people say, yes, therefore we should do Extinction Rebellion, right? We should be out and we should be calling for that this is a climate emergency. But I, I still feel quite disappointed that the climate emergency argument doesn't talk about the global south, doesn't make demands where actually would be the transformative demands. And still our actions are about occupying bridges. And I say this to Extinction Rebellion, it's not the bridges that are killing people. If you want to do that, occupy the banks, Occupy the corporations that are based in the city of London because they're the ones that are driving the, cli uh, the climate crisis and they're the ones our politicians are act, uh, 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 whose interests they're acting on and not our own interests. So, so I think now there is a general more acceptance of the frame. There's a more acceptance of, you know, it's important, but I still don't think we've got to the right place, which is how do you make the right demands that connect with people here and globally that build the power of our movement? So today in America, we saw uh, the publication of um, some detail behind this thing called the Green New Deal, uh, which, listen to our last episode if you want a bit more information, but basically a massive kind of state-led program proposed in America saying, right, green jobs for everybody, good quality green jobs for everybody who wants one, total transformation of the energy system to 100% renewables within about 10 years. But like that strikes me as kind of completely different ballpark to anything we've seen in terms of demands from, from the climate movement in the States or anywhere else recently. I mean, what, what do you think about it? And, and I think it's an important first step. I, I have caveats around that. I mean, I, I know I've, I sound like I've I'm always like got the, caveats. I'm, yeah, I'm the, I'm the miserable git in the corner <laughs> saying, but what about this? But what about this? But I think that's an important role for us to play, which is to say, if we're going to build a movement that's going to demand a Green Deal and people see that this is going to be the set of policy demands that could be transformative, then they have to work not just for the people in the United States or the people in Britain, they have to work for people around the world. So the question, for example, I ask and I, is when people say, if, well, we'll be 100% renewable energy, right? 100% renewable energy doesn't ask that question, so where will the rare earth minerals come from? Who will pay the price of that extraction? Can you simply swap a fossil fuel economy to a renewable economy? Actually, it's not possible. You have to transform your economy. So if we're going to transform your economy, we have to ask ourselves big questions. What is energy for? 
Who owns energy? What is the right of energy? And I would argue that what we need is a global Green Deal, which says energy is a public good. Everybody should have the right to energy. There should be no private corporations. It's the only way we're going to bring transformation of energy. But it should be people's own energy. It should be 100% decentralised renewable energy that tackles energy poverty, that delivers the, what we need for the climate crisis, but also recognises that communities on the front line who are facing the extraction are part and parcel of also saying... You have a right to say no. What does beyond extractivism mean? So what I don't want us to get to what, a point... What does beyond extractivism well, mean? Because, well, look, looking at the climate movement or the environment movement at the moment, you know, many times it says slogans like, you, have a, you, you either have a slogan that says, no coal or no fossil fuels, and it stops there, right? Where, where we have to recognise that actually this system, even this transformation requires a huge amount of extractive, extraction from, from the planet and where people live. So beyond extractivism says, how do we think about extraction? As that, That's not the only solution, right? If you're poor in the global south, that is not the only option on the table for you. And that is a reality for many communities. People are told you only have extraction. If you don't do extraction, you have nothing. Look, for poor countries who've got populations who say, but I want the right to have a school, to have health, to have a road. I want the right to be able to live a dignified life. I don't want to be on point of starvation. Governments then have to respond to that. And if the only option you've got on the table is extract your natural resources, we're in a, we're in a Faustian pact, right? That does mean you actually have to look at these things from a global perspective. And I, that's why I want the global Green Deal to not only tackle the climate crisis, but to tackle the structural inequalities that lead to this point that you know the majority of the world's people don't have the right a dignified life. So I think it's a very you start from a very very different point. The problem with the green deals, as I've seen them at the so far, is they start from what is possible within that country and only think within the nation state and within its own borders. And if you think like that, all of these pieces are not going to add up to what's needed. So then the question is, who's going to do the rest? Are we basically still saying that the poorest countries in the world will have to bear the responsibility? If we are, that's fine. Then we should have a global conversation saying they're going to bear the responsibility. Great. So therefore, we will have to take the majority of the world's population, right? Because there will be a massive displacement of people. Look, the UN talks about, you know, by 2050, anything between 350 million to 500 million. Some people talk up to a billion people being displaced. You know, three, two, two days ago, there was a new report about the glacier melts in the Himalayas, right? And, you know, that third of those glaciers are going to melt, no matter what best, we do. Best now. case scenario. Best case yeah, yeah. scenario. But people think about those Himalayas and think, oh, they're just in these mountains. But those that melt will affect two billion people because two billion people will rely on that for the the the, the melt feeds the rivers the in right through just to Pakistan and India, but all the way through to Mekong and to China. Mm. Mm. They will have huge impact in terms of around you know food production, which will collapse. They'll have a huge impact in terms of around uh, the ability of people, and seventy percent of people in that region are subsistence farmers. And so they will be forced to move. So there's a question. If we are going to sacrifice parts of the world, are you willing to sacrifice the people along with them? And if you're not willing to sacrifice the people, then start from that point. So what do we need to do collectively to get to that point? So there should be a global green deal. Then there should be a national green deal. So at the moment, it's working the other way around.
So, what do we need to do about it then? What do like listeners to? The, well, you know, like it's hard enough coming up with things for people to do when the thing you want them to do is do something for your country, right? But if what you're actually saying is you need to do something that helps build a global kind of sense of action, like what do individuals do in all of that? So, uh, and of course, and that's the most important question: is how do we build our collective power? So. Absolutely, that's where a Green Deal should, is really important within the UK, right? So we should not be talking about, you know, uh, Green Deal simply about, you know, is it about onshore wind or offshore wind? Is it about those? I would much rather we have a conversation around saying everybody has a right to energy, right? But the energy prices have gone up for 15% to whatever they're going up, right? There's whole uproar about, you know, we're in a time of austerity. People are on food banks, people, millions of people in zero hour contracts, etc. Living really, really struggling. And now we're going to energy prices increase. And we're going to say to people, what? You know, if, if, I, if we're not answering the questions of where people are. So I would say, say that energy is a good. You're going to get energy. We're going to retrofit every single home. So it's going to be warm homes. You'll, we have to be talking about social justice as well as environmental justice and build that power. So we have to bring climate into the arguments around what is our economy for? How do we end austerity? What is the crisis of neoliberalism? Unless we think as a connected and interconnected way, we're not going to be able to build that, those movements. And it's a very strange thing because it's a very northern phenomenon to see issues in their own silos and see the environment fight has been separate from the fight around poverty, from the fight around public services, from the fight around trade union rights, rather than us saying, bringing all of those, saying, what are the five transformative fights that if we win, we all benefit, we all rise up, we create the political conditions to be able to move forward. And I think that's a fight around ending uh, uh, poverty and inequality in the UK. And that means you know, warm homes, good, creating good jobs. You know, we have to genuinely think about what does good union jobs look like? How do you create the renewable industry that is unionised renewable industry? So just so that we move away from just transition to a justice transition. I think it's a, it's a fundamentally very, very different way of looking at politics, looking at what the crisis is, and then thinking about what are the right solutions that build power. That should be our defining objective. How do we build power of ordinary people coming together around a set of demands? That is sufficient for us to transform not just Britain, but to make sure that Britain's footprint in the rest of the world uh, is also we address that. And that really means some tough questions, right? I think we can have a win-win situation, but that requires us to think about politics in a very, very different way. And it, and it forces our the organisations, such as the environment movements, development movements, poverty organisations, to have to think about themselves in a different way. They have to reinvent themselves. We don't need environment movements. We don't need development movements. We don't need poverty movements. We need justice movements. We need movements that come together and build this kind of transformative. And that's where the idea of Black Lives Matter is really important because if, unless that's very, very central, that the lives of people in the rest of the world matter, you're going to start from a different point, you're going to come to a different demand and you're going to come to it and you will see success in a very, very different way. But if your demand starting point from saying they matter, you will be making very, very different decisions than the ones that the environment movement is making right now.
Build power. Build power comes by organising collectively. Uh, join the campaign groups. Join War on Want. Uh, support. We support frontline communities all around the world tackling extractivism, fighting for the right to food, calling for the uh, you know the right to a dignified life, trying to tackle uh, austerity and and poverty wages. Not just globally but also in the UK and that's really important because we are trying to link the struggles here to the struggles globally and say we have a common enemy we have a, and that means we have to act and organize together so join us thank you so much Azza. cheers Rex well then Dave what do you think of that Oh my word. I think the same thing I always think whenever I hear Assad talk, which is I wish I had a shred of the moral conviction and general all-round correctness in my being. Basically, like, I've thought this for years. Let me follow me what Assad's been banging on about for ages. Like, whenever I kind of am not sure what to think about a thing, I honestly think, what would Assad Raymond totally, say about a thing? Totally. That's the same. That is the same for so many people who have engaged with Assad or um, just watched him, listened to him. There's this, there's this Assad on my shoulder, and I'm like, ah, oh, what would Assad... What does that do here? What does that think? Get if blood, I was get your bloody haircut, is what Dave is on your If I was trying to justify the decision I've just made uh, to Assad, how would that go? Oh, I see. Not well. Not well. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do that again. No, it, it was great. Thanks, Assad. Thank you so much for coming and giving your time. Um, you can get in touch with us. You can tell us what you thought of the show. Yeah, well, here you we go. Can He's find getting nervous. I can on... see the sweat is appearing on your brow. Shut up! I can do this. You can find us on Facebook. Just search Sustainababble. You yes. can email us at hello at sustainababble.fish. Yes. Or you can find us on Twitter by going at the Babble Wagon. By going at the Babble that's Wagon. That'll do. Yeah. That's fine. Um, I want to say some cu- a couple of other things. Um, you can, uh, Sorry to anyone whose feed got a bit ballsed up. The Babble feed, feed may not. Yeah, you know, like oh, the, appearance, it- <laughs> the appearance of the Babble episodes. Well, I didn't balls up people's feed. <laughs> no. yeah, how much is this Brexit you're in charge of? Yeah, sorry about that. Snafu at our end, but we unsnafu'd it. Thank you to everyone who has donated on our crowdfunder page at wobblywobblywobbly.patreon.com slash sustainababble. Thank you to Andy Moore, who is the latest person to chip in. Thank Cheers, you Andy, much. and everyone. Yeah, it's so cool. It's so cool. We love you. Thank you. Oh, sorry, I thought you were going to say some more thank yous. Um, Shall I do it? Yes. Okay, thank you to Dickie Moore, the wonderful, majestic, and very beautiful Dickie Moore. Very beautiful. Uh, he's a pretty, pretty man, uh, who does the music uh, that begins and ends and intertwinkles his podcast. And of course, thank you to the no doubt uh, as wonderful and beautiful and majestic Arthur Stovall, who did all of our artwork, uh, which is on our website and stuff, but is also on our T-shirts, yes. which you can buy... And drape over yourself. Um, right, so look, shut up. A public service announcement. Due to circumstances beyond Ol's control, but totally within mine, mm. um, I'm going away for a week and we mm. can't record an episode next week, so we're going to be off for two weeks. Uh, sorry about that, Oh, I know I didn't tell you until rather late in the day. I'm like now. Like now. Yeah. Um, so Where are you staying? I'm staying in a converted railway carriage that's been converted into like a cottagey thing on the Welsh cliffs. Sounds a bit like David Cameron's shed. <laughs> I hope he's still in that shed um, Yeah, so uh, we'll be back in a fortnight With episode 136 Won't we up? Yes Right, good Sorry, won't do that again But can't be helped <laughs> Good Right, enjoy your holiday uh, We will see you in a couple of weeks Thank you very much Goodbye Bye Bye, bye. bye.